Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Manga Mavericks, where a podcast focused on manga as both a medium and industry. I'm Lumber Miyasha, and on today's episode, we're conjuring up a fantastic interview with the magically talented localization team behind Tight Kubo's spellbinding new series, Burn the Witch. We chat with editor Pancho Diaz, translator John Misco Cash, and letterer Juanessa Satone about their experiences working on the first season of Burn the Witch, pulling back the curtain on their histories in the industry, and going over translation decisions, lettering touches, localization timelines, and so much more. But before we even get into that, we have some exciting news to announce first. We're approaching both the 150th episode of this podcast and, even more significantly, our five-year anniversary. Our fifth anniversary. That's right, we've been doing this podcast for nearly half a decade now. Crazy how much time flies when you're having fun. And thinking about the journey from where this podcast started to where it is now, it is just incredible and incredibly humbling. And of course, we want to celebrate our 50-year anniversary with you, and we're going to do so on our 150th episode, which is going to come out right around our original premiere date, all those many years ago, around the end of January. But what are we going to do for our 150th episode? Why? Our annual Manga Maverick survey, of course. What better way to celebrate the podcast by discussing the podcast? But this won't be a normal yearly survey. No, this is going to encompass the entirety of the podcast history, from our very first episode in 2016 all the way to the present. You can vote for your favorite episodes, guests, moments, and so much more from the past five years of the show, as well as your favorite manga and news stories. But that's not all, because we want to give back to you, our listeners, for supporting us these past five years, and we're doing so with another manga giveaway. All survey takers will be entered for our chance to win a free manga volume of their choosing from our catalog, which includes fresh hits like Toilet Bound Hanako-kun and High School Girl to classes like Video Girl Eye, and even some old Shonen Jump issues. To top it off, you can earn even more entries in the giveaway if you guys write us a review on Apple Podcasts between now and when the survey closes and send proof of your review to us via our email at mongrevers.gmail.com or on Twitter. And if you send us an email just sharing your thoughts on the show and your experiences with it since you started listening, you can earn an entry that way too. By doing all three, you can potentially triple your chances of winning a free manga volume in our giveaway. We look forward to seeing your guys' feedback and discussing the results of the survey on our upcoming 150th episode spectacular. Celebrating the 5th anniversary of this podcast is going to be a truly magical moment. But speaking of magic, I think we've burned the daylight long enough. So let's get into our interview with the bewitching localization team behind Tide Kubo's Burn the Witch. Tide Kubo is traded in Soul Reapers for Witches and Hollows for Dragons in his newest manga, but his storytelling is no less enchanting. 
to discuss what makes Kubo's new series Burn the Witch so spellbinding, we're delighted to have on the magically talented localization team for the series from Wiz Media with us here today. We have editor Pancha Diaz, who has also edited series such as Death Note, Goodnight Punpun, and Skip Beat. Hi. We have translator Jan Mitsuko Cash, who has also translated series like Cheese Sweet Adventures, Happy Sugar Life, and the Toradora Light novels. Hello. And we have letterer Vanessa Satone, who has lettered over or almost 90 volumes of One Piece, as well as other big Honin hits like Tokyo Ghoul, Knights of the Zodiac, and Prince of Tennis. Hello. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show to discuss Burn the Witch. It's always a pleasure when we can invite on the localization team for a series to share their perspectives and experiences on the work. We've had a lot of fun doing that in a lot of previous podcasts, most recently with Kaiju number eight. And since Burn the Witch was also, you know, a big new series being tight, Koopa's follow up to Bleach, we really wanted to do an in-depth conversation about it. And after listening to you guys discuss some of your experiences working on it, on the Shonen Jump podcast, I really want to reach out to you guys to get more of your thoughts and insights on the series. Thank you for inviting us. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. I mean, as <laughs> we've gone over, I mean, you guys have worked on a lot of great series besides Burn the Witch and had a lot of experience, you know, in the manga industry. Vanessa and Pancha, I think you guys have been doing this for 15 years? Um, yeah, time yeah, blurs, but about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. I think 14. <laughs> or maybe 15, I don't remember. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you guys are industry veterans, so it's great to, you know, have on, like, really experienced pros like you guys. And, John, you've also been doing this for, like, five years, so, you know, it's really great to have, like, your insights. But I want to go into that to start with, like, your background in manga both professionally and just as a fan. Let's start there. And before we, you know, start the call, uh, Pancha, you mentioned, you know, that Nausicaa was one of your former experiences with manga. Let's start with you and your introduction to manga. So I actually started with the Nausicaa anime, the one that was an abridged form. Um, mm. I think a Canadian studio put it out. I oh, watched Warriors that. of the Wind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I watched that daily when I was a kid. And I would, oh you know, prop myself up on our coffee table so I could pretend to fly. <laughs> and then when I was <laughs> in fourth or fifth grade, maybe even third grade, um, my dad, who was a huge nerd, got the manga and let me read it. And I was just so in love. I loved the story. I loved Miyazaki's art. I love Nausicaa herself. She is still my idea of what a heroine should be, what a leader should be. She's just like foundational for mm. a heroic persona and years passed and i you know i still love nausicaa it's my favorite manga my favorite movie <clears throat> and i found out that viz uh was actually local to me when i was in grad school and i assumed that they were in new york where all publishing was but when i found out that they were in san francisco i just on the website i looked up for the fun of it if they had any jobs and they had an internship which I applied for and got, and then I just never left. <laughs> yeah, I guess the rest is history, and here we are 15 yep. years later. Yeah. And, <laughs> I mean, you've done a lot of different projects at Wiz. Like, what were some of your earliest projects? Death Note was actually the first one that I started by myself Whoa. rather than taking over my predecessor. Yeah. 
That's a that big was one. Exciting. <laughs> yeah. I've also done Goodnight Poon Poon and um, Asana Inio's newest one, Dead Dead Demons, Dead to Dead Destruction. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a fun one. Which is, <laughs> which is like the banality of an apocalypse, which. <laughs> which <laughs> oh, my God. Very seems appropriate to the time. appropriate. Yeah. yeah, just giant alien spaceship looming over the city, but people have to keep living on their daily lives. <laughs> yeah, you still have to work. <laughs> oh my gosh. And a lot of shoujo. I've done a lot of shoujo. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mentioned uh, Skip Beat. That's mm-hmm. an ongoing 40 plus volume series. Yes. Yeah, that's a favorite yeah. of mine. It is. It's a wonderful series. It's mm-hmm. been exciting watching her progress as a character over 40 something volumes yeah i love kyoko's growth in character art if you love a slow burn check out skip beat <laughs> i mean speaking of slow burns vanessa one piece i mean let's go into how you got into manga then got started with and ended up working uh, one of the biggest longest titles of all time <laughs> so when I was in high school, like, Cartoon Network and Sci-Fi Channel started showing anime, like, on the weekends. So that's really how I got into it, like, Vampire Hunter D and, like, Bubblegum Crisis. And then, yeah. like, <laughs> then we just, <laughs> then we, like, started, like, my sister and I started buying anime and we got into Ranma one half and then we started getting the manga. <laughs> so that's really how I got into it. I was already into comics, so this was just an extension of that. Like, I was into ElfQuest, which is very similar to manga also. Yes! Yes! Mm. (laughs) It was like ElfQuest, and then a bunch of anime. And that's how I got here. And then, like, when I was in college, some of my friends got internships at Central Park Media. And then Mm. I managed to get an internship through them. And then the internship turned into full-time work. And then I started doing freelance on the side while I was still working there. And eventually I was getting enough freelance work that I was able to turn that into full-time work. That's really cool. But how did you start lettering manga specifically? Like, I know you have a background in comics. I believe you went to SVA. That's actually my alma mater as well. And you majored oh, yeah. in illustrating and cartooning, and you've published a lot of your own comics. So, like, how did you transition mm-hmm. from working on your own comics and, you know, of course, lettering your own comics to lettering manga? Well, the, like, the main reason that I started working at Central Park Media was because I wanted to work in comics. and doing anything in comics was cool with me. So I started, like, I was doing, like, design work at Central Park Media at first, but then, like, as the company started failing, I started doing, like, more lettering work because we stopped hiring freelancers. And (laughs) my friend Jennifer Quick, she was doing Offbeat for Tokyo Pop, and she asked me to letter that. So I started, I think Tokyo Pop was the first company I started doing freelance for. And then I started looking into other work, like I got some work with CMX through a friend, and then I was looking on Viz's website, and they were looking for freelancers, so I applied to them. And that's basically how it happened. That's cool. What were your earliest products for Viz? 
Um, Saint Seiya was the first book I did, and then One Piece I did got like not long after. Wow, that's sweet. I yeah. we uh, talked uh, about Saint Seiya last year on the show with uh, Shannon and Mari, and I mentioned then that I really loved the lettering in Saint Seiya's English editions. So I want to. Thank you for that. I, I was wondering also, was this back in a time where you would have to do this analog, you know, you'd have to draw on the page or was this like done digitally back then as well? This was digitally. I started when I started at CPM, I think it was around the time that everyone was transitioning to digital. So I've never had to retouch by hand, but some of my friends who interned at CPM did. So I was like right on the edge of that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I have to imagine like having to touch up that art, you know, traditionally, like with physical pages, like whiting them out and redrawing it by hand would be even more laborious than even doing it digitally. Oh, yeah. Do you feel that working digitally makes lettering easier than by doing it by hand? Oh, definitely. It makes editing so much easier, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, it's a lot, because you have to white it out, and you have to, like, try to find matching screen tones, and screen tones are kind of a pain to cut in real life. Mm, I imagine, especially, like, finding, like, the exact ones that the original artists use, there might not be a, a readily accessible equivalent that you can just go out and buy. Yeah, screen tones aren't as prevalent in the U.S., so we don't have, like, as much variety as Japan does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely glad uh, that a lot of comics production is being done digitally, and so stuff like that can be much more easily reproduced, Yeah, you know, using Photoshop. and just <laughs> it's, easier to reproduce. It's, it's much easier to handle. I've cut, mm. I've done, like when I started drawing comics, I would do screen tones by hand, and it's very much, it's very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> and you get screen tones all over your apartment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I definitely think we can tank digital processes for allowing, you know, simulpubs to even happen, because it, it would not be oh, yeah. at all possible if everyone was no. still doing this. <laughs> no. <laughs> Definitely not. But I, that also brings me to you, Jan, and your work in translation. So where did that start for you? Like, where was your background in manga? And, you know, how'd you get into translating? Yeah, um, I actually started out in literary translation. Mm. Yeah, and just just barely five years ago. So I'm sort of the, the baby <laughs> in this podcast, um, as far as industry goes. Um, yeah, so I started off by translating a novel uh, for Vertical, since I, I knew one of the editors there um, from interviewing him while I was at school and college. And then I took a small break and then uh, contacted Seven Seas and started on Toradora with them. And then I just sort of progressively started to um, reach out to more places and uh, eventually got into translating manga, I think. Uh, the first one that I worked on was Cheese Sweet Adventures, I think. Mm. It might have been Happy Sugar Life. Uh, <laughs> I'm a little bit fuzzy on the details on that. But yeah, um, like uh, Pancha and uh, Vanessa, I also 
uh, just grew up with manga and, and, um, I was reading it mostly in Japanese, uh, and also some, some biz versions as well when I was in the United States. And, and I just, I just fell in love with it. And I, I didn't think that I would start working, uh, on manga, like when, when I was younger or even when I was in college. Uh, so it's, it's just sort of a happy, uh, coincidence that, that I was able to, to actually join the industry. Yeah. I mean, to get work on Toradora with Seven Seas is a really big deal, and big, that's a really big title. Uh, but also, you've done a lot of really cool titles. And I actually wanted to ask you a little bit more about your specifically getting into translating, because I know you have a you know Japanese background, uh, and you've lived in Japan for a little bit as well. So I was just wondering, like, when, you know, you probably grew up learning Japanese, but then when did you start, like, learning to translate that skill into translating? Yeah, um, so, yeah, like you like you said, I've, I've been sort of learning Japanese my whole life, but just only uh, verbally. So I would speak with my mom uh, when I was growing up, and then also with the rest of my family in Japan when I would spend summers there. And then I didn't really learn how to read um, or write until sort of um between middle school and college um i, I learned like hiragana and katakana while i was um in middle school so that's just sort of the basic phonetics um so then the kanji the complicated characters I, I couldn't read any of those back then um and then when i got into college i i took some formal classes and actually started to learn how to uh, read and write more formally and then from there I started taking translation courses. Um, at the, that time, I didn't really think that I would actually go into translation as a career path. Uh, I was majoring in biology, and I thought that uh, I, I would try going uh, that way, like academic route. And I sort of decided I didn't really actually want to do that after <laughs> after sort of being doing some research. Uh, and then I, I sort of um, started to explore translation more my senior year uh, while I was in college. Um, I talked to the editor at Vertical as part of my project for my senior year for, for getting a translation certificate. And after that, I sort of, I, I got a lot more interested in translation because of that and because of uh, Idra Novi, who she, she used to um, teach a course um, at the college that I went to in translation, literary translation. Um, and she's a translator herself. So she, she really inspired me to actually um, consider this as a career path. That's really cool. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've had like a really cool journey in becoming a translator. I mean, to speak a little bit about you considering biology, you know, in college, like, has that background helped you at all in translation? Oh, yeah, yeah, it has. Um, actually, very, very recently, I, I never really thought that I would use my biology degree, um, because I, I sort of went in a completely different direction, uh, even for my day job for that. Um, but I used it in the volume two of a manga series that I translated for Seven Seas, uh, which is Rainbow and Black. There's mm. this sort of pet creature that's fantastical and uh, doesn't actually exist in real life. And they, they talked a little bit about some biological concepts and that and animal behavior. So I could actually <laughs> use my degree um, for that manga. That's awesome. I mean, it's always cool when you can pull outside experiences into your work like that. Yeah, definitely. 
<laughs> also to speak about you learning hiragana when you're younger i read uh in your interview with jay and translations that inuyasha was uh, a big inspiration for you to learn hiragana so obviously i'm a big roku takashi fan so i wanted to ask you about that oh yeah definitely um so uh when i was in japan while I was growing up, um, my cousins wanted to watch Inuyasha, uh, the anime. So, like, I, I think we started with, like, a random episode in the middle of the series, and then I just sort of got hooked. <laughs> and I really, really wanted to, um, to read more of it and to watch more of it, but I, I think the anime wasn't very widely available in the U.S. back then. Um, so mm-hmm. I started buying the manga instead, or at least I, I couldn't get a hold of it. Uh, where I was living at the time. Uh, so I started buying the manga, and I think I started with Viz's uh, translations at first, um, and started buying like volume one, volume two. And then uh, eventually I realized that uh, I-, I could buy the volumes in Japan. So then <laughs> I started taking uh, classes at Kumon, uh, which is uh, a tutoring school in Japan. They-, they also have like a few locations in the US too, I think now. Um, and that was where I sort of started learning um, hiragana, katagana, and then a, like very, very slight amounts of kanji. And I just sort of picked up enough so that I could actually read Shonen Jump. And, and then and then I stopped, <laughs> uh, which is <laughs> probably not the, the best. I, I got enough that, that I could actually read. And that at the time, that was enough for me. <laughs> nice, nice. It's really cool to hear a specific series uh, really encouraged, like, oh man, I gotta read more of this, and so I gotta learn, you know, how to read more of this in Japanese to get more of that story. That's really cool to hear. I also wanted to ask about something else specifically uh, that I read in your interview and translations about, like, you were really interested about an episode of Pokemon when you were a kid, about a scene that had a multi-line pun with visual cues. Like, I was wondering, like, what specific scene was that? Oh yeah, that that was um I think that it was a scene in the Pokemon Center and Meowth he had lost his little coin on his head. I think it had been yeah. like hit and smashed into his forehead, so like it disappeared <laughs> into his forehead. And he he was trying to um tell the Chansey who was like trying to help him um what was wrong basically. I think he so he said um I can't remember the exact pun, but um Basically, he, he kept on saying the correct word, and then the Chansey kept on bringing up things that were completely incorrect, but sounded very, very similar. <laughs> and, um, and I watched that in Japanese first. So, like, that got me curious, um, uh, because I, I knew that Pokemon was also, um, going on in the US at the same time. Um, so, so, like, I waited until that episode came out, um, in the US, and I just sort of, like, I was just really interested in seeing like exactly how they they translated that. So, yeah, that that was like one of the things that made me interested in translation. Um, but I didn't think that would be a viable career option at that time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think I recognize the scene you're talking about now. Meowth's coin on his head is called a koban, and mm-hmm. so in the Japanese version, it was all puns on koban. Uh, and then in the English edition, they had to rewrite it. So, like, the visuals on screen, like, matched the dialogue he said. So, I'm looking up a comparison now. And f- one of the first things to me I mentioned is, like, when he's looking for his koban, 
the chanting mishears it as Gohan, and so oh, yeah, it yeah. brings up a bowl of rice. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next one is a Gobon, so it brings up a Goboard. And then in the English edition, uh, in the translation, they were like, someone help me find my charm, I'll pay me price. And that is the prompt for Chansey to bring up that rice. So, I mean, that was some mm. very clever localization there, for sure. Oh, puns are so tricky. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what are some of your like most challenging experiences reworking puns in Japanese into English? Just in any manga, or since this is a Burn the Witch podcast, were there any in Burn the Witch that you found challenging? I think that there weren't... I can't recall any puns off the top of my head in Burn the Witch. Toradora had a lot of them. Um, I think that one was uh, Inkwajan, which is the name of uh, the main character's pet parakeet. And at one point, the parakeet calls itself Inkwajan, which means, like, poop, <laughs> basically, uh, with, with Chan at the end of it. Um, and I think, I think that I... I Translated that to um, dung kochan, like dung as in poo. And the funny thing about that was, um, I, I was thinking about it for for like a week or two. Like it, it was, uh, it was something that was haunting me a bit uh, because I, I couldn't think of anything good. And um, I thought of it as I was taking my dog out to to the park, and and she was actually doing on the ground. Um, <laughs> oh there you go that's fun (laughs) so real real life informing uh, my translation (laughs) i mean yeah again bringing in your outside experiences for inspiration in your creative work (laughs) but yeah it's great to hear all your guys's backgrounds in manga and the comics industry and now I would like to get into one of your most recent projects, of course, the subject is this podcast, Burn the Witch. And, I mean, I guess before we go into that, a bit prior to Burn the Witch, uh and Jan, you guys have had experience with some of Kubo's previous work, and Pancha, you've been involved with Bleach for quite a long time. You edited a few volumes of the original manga, and you worked as a creative consultant on most of the anime. So I'm wondering, yes. like, did those previous experiences with Kubo's work inform your approach to Burn the Witch? And I also kind of wanted to ask specifically, like, what was your role as a creative consultant on the anime? Like, what does that specifically entail? So to start with the anime, I would read the scripts coming in from the anime team and alert them to anything that was coming up in the manga that might affect the way that they were localizing that script Anime has a has a whole other consideration. They need to match the mouth flap. So sometimes lines can't match the manga exactly. Mm-hmm. Things have to be added or subtracted in order to have it match the visuals. So I would just let them know if, you know, oh, this sentence, you really do need to keep this information. Or FYI, this character is going to do this thing later on, so you should not say this thing. You know, just to try and keep them as informed as possible because the manga at the time was uh, well ahead of the anime. Mm-hmm. And we would have meetings where we would go over changes and discuss things like that. And I've done interviews and audio commentaries. <laughs> That's cool. Like they're on the DVDs and Blu-rays. Yes. <laughs> oh man. I guess I should check I did, those uh, out. <laughs> I did one for one of the theatrical release movies, and my oh. little cousin in Texas oh. saw my name. 
up on the big screen and was so excited. And that is the most famous I've ever been. I mean, that's really awesome because, yeah, yeah. I mean, your name was in theatrical credits because those first yeah. two Bleach movies, or at least the first one, that was screened in theaters. I remember that. So that is a really cool thing to see your name <laughs> on the big screen in a movie theater. That is really cool. And it is also really <laughs> smart to, you know, use the manga to plan ahead for the anime. And especially mm -hmm. since Wiz was doing both the anime and the manga localization for Bleach, you know, to keep terminology consistent. Because definitely, you know, there can be term differences sometimes between the two versions of different companies do them. Like Dragon Ball is a big example where there are terms used in the Viz edition of the manga that Funimation does not use and does extend to character name differences like Krillin in the English dub versus Kuririn in the English manga. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely want to try to keep consistency if we're the one doing both. And even in terms of the arcs that are not in the manga, we want to at least have the tone be consistent. Mm -hmm. But I guess then to get back into like, you know, that experience with Bleach and, you know, really immersing yourself in Kubo's sensei's work, I guess, you know, what was your impression of his style of writing at the time? And then what was your impression of whether it was the same or different uh, in Burn the Witch and how that may have informed your approach as the editor of Burn the Witch? Mm -hmm. One of the first things I noticed about Kubo sensei's work when I started working on it was how rich his world building is. Mm -hmm. And it's it's one of these it's like an iceberg right you just you get a sense of it but you feel that there's such a depth of it floating underneath and there's this anticipation of when are you going to get to learn more and sometimes you don't but then sometimes he surprises you and unveils just an entirely new section of this world that you didn't even expect was there mm -hmm. and that was so much fun in bleach just like all of a sudden there are autumn counters and we didn't know that that was even <laughs> <laughs> that was even yeah in the works and this entire Hueco Mundo shows up and it's this whole new world to explore. And it's really exciting. So coming into burn the witch, I am absolutely expecting things like that to happen. And kind of in preparation of that, Jan has been keeping a very detailed style guide of characters and things so that as the world gets bigger, we have a grasp on it and we can go back and check things for consistency and just be able to hand this off if there is an anime and we're doing it so that the anime team doesn't have to go scrabbling for terms. Nice. It's great to have a reference like that, especially as you mentioned, Kuba really does love like really fleshed out worlds where have so many layers to them and populated with so many different characters and factions and <laughs> terminology to keep track of. So, I mean, Jan, yeah. uh, you also had an experience to immerse yourself in Kubo's world of Bleach because you and Pancho worked on the Can't Fear Your Own World novels and so I mean I'm curious about did having to immerse yourselves in the world of Bleach for those novels because those novels uh, have the full brunt of the Bleach world in them like all the characters pretty much show up <laughs> all the factions you got the Wizards you got the Arankar and the Vanden Reich and all these other characters in the world of Bleach all these references to plot points in Bleach from the throughout the series like so did immersing yourself in that world like also help you prepare you for Burn the Witch and any translation decisions you had to make in Burn the Witch? 
Yeah, for for translation decisions, not so much, but it, it did sort of prepare me for the number of characters uh, that <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the first chapter was a bit of a surprise at the very end when when it's just basically like here here's eight new characters with, with all different yeah. names that are uh, very very uh, surprising and complex. Um, yeah, so I, I think that uh, knowing his style of world building, like Pancha mentioned, um, did did help a bit. Uh, like knowing sort of that uh, there there was this um, entire iceberg, or there will be this entire iceberg, um, and we only know sort of the surface level. Uh, that that really helped to uh, <laughs> to inform some things. Um, like I, I really do just sort of pour over each and every word and try to make sure that I'm not missing something that might come up later. Uh, because he he really does love his callbacks to earlier parts of his work. Yeah, yeah. he's very intentional. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, so you have to be prepared for that to come up again. <laughs> mm-hmm. Very detail oriented storytelling. Like even towards the final arc of Bleach, like there were so many things from earlier parts of the story coming back. Uh, but I think Burn the Witch also structurally has very a lot of similarities to Bleach because. The spells they use in Burn the Witch are similar to the Keto in Bleach. Mm-hmm. So that was also something I was wondering about. It's like, well, there seems to be some direct like parallels to Bleach here. So I was wondering if that informed like any approaches to also handling those in Burn the Witch. But it sounds like you guys really, you know, you kept like Kubo's storytelling in mind when like mapping out like the characters and turns, but otherwise that didn't necessarily a form like your approach to that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that the the magical the magic numbers are they they seem like a separate system to me um, entirely. Mm. Like they they seem re- related to each other, but um, I I think that they're their own system um, based on what we've seen yeah. so far. So if if this is in the same world as Bleach, the font of magic is going to be the same. The well of power that they draw upon. And so there might be some similarities in how the spells are enacted, but because this is in the UK rather than Japan, the grammar of the spells are probably different and the way that you learn it. So there, there might be some similarities, but we're not trying to match it to bleach. We're trying to leave the room for those differences to be unfolded. Right, right. I mean, the different setting is definitely important, and I'm sure they're also originally just called something different too. Like they might be similar to similar spells in Bleach, but they're definitely adapted, adjusted for you know this different branch of Soul Society. Mm-hmm. I mean, speaking to reusing like similar styles of fonts and stuff. I mean, that brings me to Vanessa and you know like the approach to you know lettering Burn the Witch, and I, then I, I've. Uh, compared with you know the one shot and then some of bleach and you know the attention to detail in terms of trying to reuse like similar fonts from bleach uh in approaching burn the witch but like what was your thought process on like lettering the series and like approaching like different types of fonts used in the series uh, the only like the only real instruction was that they wanted the main dialogue font to be the same as bleach and then, like, a few of the other fonts, like the magic font, I was specifically asked to, like, pick a ma- font for the magic and for, like, captions. And pretty much any everything else, I just picked stuff that seemed appropriate. Cool. There's a font for when, um, for when Nina is, like, angry, so there's that. <laughs> 
sorry, I've forgotten all the characters' names. <laughs> the, there's maybe a different type of font for like humorous scenes. Yeah, you know, there's, when characters are like acting yeah, maybe flirty or cutesy. Yeah, there's a font for when um, Balgo was that his name? That was yeah, when, yeah. yeah, when he's being cutesy. There's a font for him, or when Nina's bandmate is like kind of like weak there's a different font for that yeah yeah i mean i definitely noticed a lot of the font choices especially with the one shot compared to and i also want to ask about that because the previously the one shot was done by a different team uh, david brothers caleb cook and brandon and i know they're big leech fans and so i was Interested to see like what choices they made that may have carried over into the series, and what choices they decided you know to change. Like one page in particular that really stood out to me in comparing the one shot and uh, the first chapter specifically is the page when they are explaining the lore of dragons. I compared the art of this page. Uh, it's like page eighteen in the first chapter and page thirteen in the one shot. And I think it's the same page. The art is the same. The layout of the text balloons is the same. I think Kubo may have reused it from the one-shot for this first chapter. But in comparing the two versions, I noticed that the lettering was different, but also some translation choices uh, in how some of the text read was a little different. So I was wondering, like, the approach to handling, like, pages like that and just in general, like, stylistically, the approach to writing and lettering the series. I didn't read, I never read the one shot, so I was basically just doing my own thing from the beginning. Oh, cool. Like, yeah. I was just going to say, um, that wasn't necessarily a planned decision to have Vanessa not read the one shot, but I don't mind that she didn't. I wanted to treat this as its own project going forward mm -hmm. to acknowledge that the one shot existed, but this is, you know, one shots are like pilots and pilots do get changed before broadcast. So I wanted this to definitely have its own life. Definitely. I mean, I know a lot of when it comes to dubs, like a lot of actors don't try and emulate the original uh, Japanese performance in that way. And um, this also applies to like when you're taking up another role uh, that a previous actor did, you know, when an actor change happens in a show, like sometimes you want to, do what the previous person did, but sometimes you just want to do your own take on it. And mm -hmm. I think definitely because there's this clear separation between what the original one shot was, it was originally like a self-contained story, and this is like, you know, a start of a, like a new life for the series. Like, I definitely mm -hmm. think a change in direction is definitely uh, appropriate. Uh, but I was also wondering, you know, Jan, was this also a same case for you, or... Like, well, I I read <laughs> I I read the one shot and I I studied it I studied Caleb's uh, translation. Yeah, I I tried to uh, make sure that whenever there was anything that was shared between the first chapter and the one shot, um, I tried to make sure that that was noted every time. Mm -hmm. And and I did like put in some commentary for Pancha so that she could make a decision uh, editorially. Yeah. Yeah. So. Whenever I could, I, I tried to make sure that that, that was noted and that was um, in there in some way. And um, there there were some things, though, that uh, that were requested changes. So, uh, for example, Nini's name uh, was changed and 
uh, the umbrella was changed. Like, I, I think it was, um, it used to be called something else and used to not be umbrellas, mm-hmm. uh, for example. So, so there were, those changes were, um, were requested from the Japanese side specifically. So mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. They were called umbrellas in the one shot, and oh, so the opposite. So they they were called something oh. else in the one shot, and then for the new series and for the anime, they they were called umbrellas instead. Oh, okay. Hmm. So they they may have gone back. <laughs> they may have gone back and fixed the one shot. Yeah. Oh, that, that might be it. Yeah, I'm looking, and it is umbrella in the one shot. Yeah. I know they did go back and make a lot of the one-shot terms consistent with the changes that Kubo-sensei made for the series. Okay, cool. Let me see if I can find. I have the original jump <laughs> issue. I wonder if they... Let's see. Okay, conservationist was, was what it was originally in the first translation of the one-shot. Okay, cool. It's interesting how choices uh, can differ between different versions in terms of uh, localization translation. Like, I watched the anime recently, and there are definitely, like, differences between choices made by you guys in the manga and then choices made by the anime translation team. One of the ones I noticed uh, really was, like, the kind of poem that uh, Noelle chants when she's chasing the bad buck. Like, it's mm-hmm. a lot more, like, uh, poetic in your uh, version. And in the anime, it didn't really quite have that same cadence or rhyming scheme, I felt. Jan worked hard on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I, I know sort of that um, there are a lot of lines that ended with um, with key. Uh, in Japanese. So okay. Japanese doesn't really have uh, very much rhyming to it because a lot of the sentence endings are very, very similar. So uh, it's not as unique or interesting when when the lines lines um, sort of match up. Um, what I noticed uh, when I was reading the first chapter was that there were a lot of key endings, I think, in the, in the first three lines. The second, the last two lines uh, didn't really have that. And at the time, I couldn't really tell if that was sort of on purpose or or not. But it did seem more like a poem and more like it was, it seemed kind of purposeful. So I, I wanted to make sure that that was in there, uh, just in case. For simulpods, we can't really tell where the story is going or um, or what might happen in the future. So a lot of the decisions I sort of made had to uh, be done with limited information, too. So I, I didn't really know whether or not that sort of that sort of characteristic would continue on in the series. So I tried to do that for the chapter one. Well, I really liked it. I think it gives a lot of flavor. It gives like a kind of like mystical quality that you kind of would expect from a series about, you know, people casting spells and, you know, working in a fantasy setting. Yeah, and magic in English tends to be poetic. Mm-hmm. So it it gives it that sense that this is happening in a different country than Bleach. Yeah. Like, also just, like, I, I'd watched uh, Sabrina, Teenage Witch on Netflix <laughs> in preparation, and also um, <laughs> also Charmed. Like, I, I was watching a lot of uh, sort of witchy shows to sort of get myself in the right mindset for this too. So um, that, that also kind of probably um, influenced the translation a bit. Oh, nice. 
Bancha and Vanessa, did you watch any, like, witchy type shows uh, before working on Burn the Witch, too? Um, <laughs> not really. No. <laughs> not specifically. <laughs> I don't really have to do too much to prepare for anything. <laughs> but, so not specifically, but I am a huge fan of science fiction and fantasy, and so I'm I'm deeply steeped in magic lore. <laughs> nice. And that's, like, a great thing to bring into a series that is definitely working with a lot of folklore and reinventing it in interesting ways, like with the Marchands all being based off of fairy tales and stuff. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I mean, you just were mentioning about the simulpub process, and I was really curious about that because, of course, this was, you know, designed as a limited miniseries, but when it was first announced back in (laughs) March, Kubo mentioned that, you know, by the time we, the readers, were reading this, you know, he would have been finished with this and be playing Animal Crossing. So I was wondering, like, <laughs> if he, it seemed like he had the manuscript finished back in March. So I was wondering, like, if he had it finished, like, did you guys have more time to work on it? Like, could you get it a little bit in advance of when it began serialization? Or was this, like, kind of a, the normal, like, simulpub, really quick turnaround? Like, how much time do you have to work on the chapters compared to maybe other simulpub projects you did? Or, I mean... In general, like, how fast uh, was the turnaround process for each chapter like? I'll just say really quickly that we did not have any more time. They take the possibility (laughs) of leaks very seriously. So Mm -hmm. they did not not give this to us until the absolute last minute that we we needed to complete it. So, uh, Vanessa, how is that like, how is it like compared to the other titles you've worked on? Um, It was about the same. Like, I had about the same amount of work to do. It's a lot faster than One Piece. That was one thing. <laughs> how, how much faster by your estimate? Like, if you were um, to compare it in terms of one pages of One Piece, like a single chapter of the Witch. I would say, like, they probably took around the same amount of time to letter, but Burn the Witch chapters are a lot longer than One Piece chapters. Interesting. Like, the chapters were, like, between 30 and 50 pages, and One Piece chapters are usually 17 pages. And it probably took me more or less the same amount of time, maybe a little bit longer on Burn the Witch, since it's two to three times as long. (laughs) But One Piece is very wordy, and Burn the Witch is not so much. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, especially nowadays, uh, Oda's chapters are so dense with so much (laughs) going on, so much text going around. Like, yeah, I can only imagine. uh, Just not the simulpub being very time intensive, but also when you go to retouch Otis sound effects for the volumes, that must also be an mm. extra amount of work. So I know in the past that they've had to have multiple letterers working on one piece. So like someone would be working on volume one, someone would be working on two, and someone would be working on three just because it's it was too much work for one letterer to do. Yeah, well, oh, yeah. around around volume twenty something. That was when we decided to like speed up and get caught up with Japan. So we were releasing like five volumes a month for six months, I think. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, from that, I just jumped from volume twenty-one to like fifty-four, and I didn't do any of the, <laughs> I didn't do any of the skipped volumes. Oh, interesting. So like you, you skipped yeah. like right to the end zone yeah. and like work forward so, from like, there. Yeah, so it was just like jump ahead and stay caught up. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, 
you've been doing like the One Piece simulpub for eight years now? I'm not sure when it started, but I guess that might be about right. I've been doing like I've been doing One Piece since before it was simulpub, so yeah, I've been yeah. doing simulpub since the beginning of that. But yeah, I mean, with kind of you know having been pretty seasoned in doing like something as maybe time intensive as One Piece, like doing Burn the Witch on top of that, did that make your schedule like tighter, or like did you feel like oh you had time to do both? in a week pretty comfortably or yeah it was it wasn't that much tighter i was i was finishing up another book around that time so i had like a little bit of extra time in my schedule so i figured that i'd be able to squeeze that in i see. usually yeah usually simul pubs aren't that time consuming it's just mm-hmm. like a few a few extra hours out of my day interesting but how about you guys, uh, Pancha and Jam? Like, like, what were? You, have you had previous experience with Simulpus before Burn the Witch? And how did Burn the Witch compare to those? Or if you've only done like uh, work on you know graphic novel releases or things that are paced uh, differently, like how did the experience compare? Jam, yeah. um, so this is my first Simulpub. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I. I didn't really, um, I don't really have much uh, comparison as far as final pubs go, but it's very, very different from just working on one volume in one sitting because I, I can't read ahead. Um, some of the information, it, like I mentioned, it will occur later. I, I just don't know. Um, I can't predict the future for that. So I have to sort of make sure that the wording is such that it's not too specific, but still is accurate. Mm-hmm. For example, and also I, I think that simul pubs um, they they take a bit longer um, for me at least, just because I'm I'm spending more time trying to make sure that uh, the the translation isn't going to um, to to basically not take into account something that's going to happen. Um, so I, I think that one example is the, there's a line in the first chapter that doesn't have a subject mentioned. Um, so it's a little bit ambiguous exactly um, who they're talking about. And it turned out that they were talking about a different character. Um, so, so I had to like send in a um, correction for that to Pancha um, to, to make sure that that was accurate after we got the second chapter. I see. So That's that was tricky. fixed uh, retroactively? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's hard trying to future-proof <laughs> when the future is so opaque. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I know one big change happened in a series I was reading recently, uh, Mashal. Like, initially, mm-hmm. Mashal's last name was uh, Van Dead, and then recently it's been changed to Burn Dead. But it had been, like, a couple, like, a few months of his name being Van Dead. So sometimes, I guess, like, you have to, you get, like, new information about, like, a choice that needs, to, how things should be, like, stylized, and you have to go back and fix all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, when it's digital, that's not that hard of a fix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw, like, with Mashal, like, all the previous chapters have been fixed. So, I mean, mm-hmm. working with digital files, it does seem like, yeah, it'd be a lot easier to go and update those. Yeah. But also to talk about, you know, time spent on the translation, like, how much time did you maybe have to spend like on research? Cause I know like researching like terms that might need to be used for translation choices is a big 
chunk of the job. And, and to compare with Bleach as well, like, which was more time intensive on that front in terms of like researching, like what terminology you use? And specifically, I was wondering, like, with stuff like, you know, the Marchins and how they're all named after fairy tales, like, was it pretty clear, like, reading the the original Japanese, like, what those stories were? Or did you have to look into, like, what to call those stories? Oh, yeah, that that was pretty clear from the outset, uh, just because there was the, so the, uh, the actual names were, were actually already English, just in katakana. So, like, those were oh. already decided. So I, I could sort of look at those and then also look at the visual cues uh, that were in the background in order to figure out exactly uh, what those stories map to. So I, I did do that research, even though um, it doesn't really like show up in the translation itself, just because um, Kubel Sensei already had the English um, sort of decided. But for for example, the uh, band of animals, uh, Martian, I, I had to look that up and try to figure out uh, which fairy tale that was because I wasn't familiar with it. Um, and then for bubbles, I, I like looked at the uh, background artwork and it's like this this is probably the Little Mermaid. It just, yeah yeah the, it, yeah for the most part that that was pretty pretty clear with the information that was provided. Nice, nice. I mean, it's definitely helpful that Kubo, you, you know, wrote a lot of text out in English, like the character names for the top of horns in the first chapter. So mm-hmm. that's always nice to have, like, especially for complicated, you know, character name spellings to yes. have that from the <laughs> author himself. And I guess speaking He's of one so of those... Imaginative. Yeah, I mean, Kubo is famous for his weird names. I mean, speaking of, there's definitely one character in particular that I know a lot of people were struggling to figure out how to pronounce her name. And then I heard on the Shonen Jump podcast, uh, you pronounce it as Kintanaya. So I was like wondering, like in the, the, like what clues in the, you know, Japanese reading of her name maybe uh, led you to figure out what the correct pronunciation is because like from everyone like all the fans like talking about it i have heard so many different ways people <laughs> pronounce that yeah so japanese doesn't really need a pronunciation guide because the the characters are phonetic so there there's not really a way to sort of misinterpret or reinterpret the way that something is pronounced um like in english like when you combine like a p and h it's a f sound but like in japanese there's there's nothing like that that's complicated it's it's just set uh phonetics so the the name readings are very very clear in japanese um and it's just only the english where it's a little bit harder to figure out exactly how to pronounce someone's name yeah that makes sense if he hadn't had done those those lovely illustrative names and Jan was just working from the katakana, we probably would have spelled it a lot different. <laughs> I mean, thank goodness he, he wrote him out. <laughs> he was being really considerate. Yeah, but Kubo is really also known for his very stylish uses uh, of sound effects, and particularly like English letters. Uh, he's great, like just in terms of graphic design. But speaking yeah. of Kubo's lettering, I mean, Vanessa, I was also curious about some text that I was wondering, was it your lettering or was it Kubo? Specifically, there are like times when uh, some of the dragons like scream and there are like more like uh, rough like lettering in the word balloons where like they're yelling. And so the 
the text is like very like violent and shaky, like bold. Like when uh, Ellie is screaming, in particular, like gra, or even the the bad book that Noel is chasing in the first chapter also like has like a very violent gra yell in his word balloon. Was that Kubo or no? Those were me. Oh, those were you. Cool, cool. Yeah. And so, what was your like thought process in like drawing out? the sound effects did inside those word balloons. Like, did you hand-draw those? It, it, they look hand-drawn. And yeah, so were you just drawn. trying to match the original from Kubo, or...? Yeah, I was, trying, I was trying my best to, like, make it look as similar to the Japanese as possible. And yeah. a lot of his stuff is very, like, sketchy and rough. So it made more sense to hand-draw it than to use a font for most of them. Oh, definitely. I especially like in early on in chapter four, the gra that Ellie yells there. I really like the very think, very inky lettering you did for that. Like, it really looks like kind of like marker or just very, very thick brushwork. And I really <laughs> like that feel for it. Like, it really communicates kind of the, the violent intensity of that yell. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Vanessa also worked on um, Tokyo Ghoul Re with me, so she has a lot of experience kind of translating very violent sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely with that series. I mean, I'm <laughs> curious to see like how you'll do some of the text uh, when you guys redo it for a uh, graphic novel release. Like, also in Chapter 4, mm-hmm. like there's this big two-page spread where like there's all this bam, bam, bam sound effects uh there's a lot of really cool stuff in here like i guess just in terms of like from a perspective as a letter and also just as a comic story as yourself like what is your impression of kubo's sound effects and how do you think you'll you know continue to approach them uh, as you work on the series um i really like the way he does sound effects like it's definitely something that i would do like probably like start off with a font and then add some like handwritten flourishes with them like on that bam 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 page just like do like a rough brush outline around the lettering mm-hmm. yeah they look like they'll be fun to read you <laughs> yeah i'm looking forward to that i mean i think one of my favorite uses of him lettering out like english letters was when bruno is doing his like attack on ellie in a in the fourth chapter, he's using this greedy curtain attack, and like this, this goopy thing just falls out of the magic circle he draws in the sky, and it reads. And there's like text in this that reads "Just choke you," and <laughs> I thought that was like a really cool aesthetic thing. So, like when you see like manga authors make like choices like that, does that also inform like your pro your uh, process when you like redraw like the text surrounding it like the sound effects surrounding it um the english stuff like the english stuff he wrote not so much like i would try to make the sound effects match the japanese sound effects and that doesn't really like the the magic spell doesn't really look like the rest of the sound effects Mm. in general have there ever been cases where a manga artist wrote something out in English originally that you have had to change in the translation or the lettering? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes stuff will be misspelled and we have to like adjust it 
Like I'm working, like one of the other books I'm doing right now is Zom 100, which there's like in part of the book, one of the characters is watching some English zombie movies, but the English dialogue is not accurate. So I had to like re-letter it and match the lettering in that. To match it up more with the movie, the original movie? Well, the the grammar was incorrect. Oh, the grammar. The yeah. grammar's one. Yeah. Yeah, so we had to, like, rewrite it so the so it made sense grammatically. That makes sense. There was actually, like, one sign in Burn the Wish that was written out in English that I was a conf- little confused about, I guess. It's, like, on chapter 3, page 25. Like, they're standing on, like, this radio tower. There are these signs. And one reads, choose safety way, and then for your safety, home away. And... Like, I know a home away is another term for, like, kind of a, you know, rental property you go to, but it just it read a little weird to me. Like, is it a pun on for your safety home away? Like, with a space in between home and away? Or is this, do they mean, like, as a rental property? So that was, like, one thing that I was curious about. Like, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that... So- <laughs> Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, that that was in the original chapter. Um, that so that was Kubel Sensei's uh, writing. Yeah, I'm, I'm just wondering—is yeah. that also an example yeah. of like something? Like, does that make sense? That is as it is, or is that something that you would change for the graphic novel? I would check on that. I think it's uh, like a security company. My guess is that this mm. is a a home safety system, and it's an ad for that. But we would definitely check to figure yeah. out what that is and then rewrite as necessary to make it clear. But um, yeah. with the Simulpub, we had limited time for getting that kind of feedback. Yeah, as far as I can tell, most like as far as I didn't notice anything too off, like the grammar and like all the cell phones and stuff, newspapers seems to be pretty accurate. Yeah, I think for the most part, it was like really well done English. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even like the titles, like Kubo is known for like his kind of weird in English titles, like Why Me Sad and stuff like that. But like, I think even the titles, like, you know, they made like a lot of grammatical sense as well. (laughs) And in terms of the titles, I'm sure he's having fun with it. So even if it's like Why Me Sad, we wouldn't want to change that necessarily. Right, right. I mean... Yeah, I mean, that's part of the fun of uh, Kubo's writing is that he, yeah. he makes like some interesting uh, choices like that. It's very memorable. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I guess I just really want to get into your thoughts on Burn the Witch as a series, you know, beyond just working on it, like your thoughts on the story, the characters, the world of it. So, I mean, I guess to start off with, like, Pancha, as the editor of Burn the Witch, like, how would you pitch the series like what would be your short pitches in terms of like how you would sell this to someone oh i haven't written the cover text yet <laughs> this is, this well, is a question. practice uh, for the back of the book copy um yeah oh this is putting me on the spot but um <laughs> and and also it's it's kind of hard because with just the first volume i'm not sure where the the flow of this story is going to go, where the arc is projecting. So are these two 
wing bind agents going to be fighting against the orthodoxy of their agency? Mm. I would like to see them befriend or at least make allies with dragons. So I would, yeah. I would hope I would be able to write something about that. But as it is, are they just youngsters chafing at rules that don't make sense to them, but there is a purpose to them that will learn further down the road? Or has Wingbind become so locked into its own laws that it can't see that the world needs to change? I, it's too hard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, but the way the story ends with this first, you know, season of chapters, it does leaves me curious in terms of the direction ongoing. I mean, it seems like the short term conflict of Balgo being targeted by, you know, the organization is on hold because they want to use him to lure out more of the margins. So is the plot going forward going to be to discover the remaining margins and take them out? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that we will see more because, uh, the character designs for the Marchands are gorgeous and I, I just feel like Kubo has so many more of those to share with us. But the big question is, is it to destroy them or is it to show the readers another side of them? I really, really hope it's the second. <laughs> yeah, same here. But it's an interesting society in which there are definitely dragons. They are, you know, fighting against that they want to get rid of but dragons are also part of you know kind of the daily life of reverse london like we see that not only do they work with dragons like they ride dragons they're boom buggies but dragons are like flower pots and there's a bus dragon and there's a radio <laughs> tower dragon they use dragon for all sorts of things in reverse london so it's like an entire community that's kind of built on using dragon for like resources and companions it's kind of like the pokemon world in that way we should have to wonder like how did the biology of this work that a dragon was born to become a bus to carry people inside of it yeah like what kind of um genetic program do they have going like, is this Dragon intentional breeding. genetic engineering? Like, or was this natural biology? Like, it's yeah. when you think about Pokemon, you ask, like, is were they originally born as ice cream cones? Did they come that way <laughs> over time? Uh, was this Pokemon born as to look like a chandelier, uh, chandelier, or a magnet? <laughs> So it's a lot of fun, I think, to have a world like that where like these dragons are not just like the traditional type of Western or Chinese or Japanese dragons that you imagine, but they they are like all these interesting different forms of creatures that can serve also all these different purposes. And then to have these dragons, you know, modeled after fairy tales on top of that, you know, being these big majestic creatures is really cool too. Yeah, his world building is so rich. But I wanted to hear your guys' thoughts on the characters too. Like, what are some of your favorite characters so far, and what stand out to you about you know Kubo's characters, especially you know thinking about you know how you know he's he's famous for his character designs, especially I think that carried over into Burn the Witch. But in terms of characterization too, how did you enjoy them? I love um, I love Bruno and also Noel. <laughs> um, they're they're really great. <laughs> Just the fact that Noel sort of. Um, I, I think the Pancha mentioned this in the last podcast. Um, 
that she has like sort of a soft side um, towards the dragons, but like she doesn't show that um, to to other people. Yeah. And then Bruno is just um, he he's just a fun character overall, and the the spray paint that he uses is just that that was great. Like I really love that part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Kubo's also great at great power system, so I do like his like magic graffiti that like summons like this again yeah. this this graffiti curtain that envelops Ellie. But yeah, I also agree with your thoughts on Noelle. Like, I really enjoy your personality and that she is kind of like a deadpan, like somewhat (laughs) stoic and snarky character, but she does like really care about, you know, the people in her life and for dragons. Uh, She has like even a soft spot for Balgo that she is like very (laughs) happy that, you know, that order to execute him is rescinded and he gives him that hug at the end of the fourth chapter. So, yeah, I I really enjoy the characterization, and I like the dynamic between Noelle and Nini. I like the dynamic between Noelle and Nini because, you know, I think this is also a common Kubo archetype or teaming that he does, where he introduces pairs of characters, and one is like the more energetic and outspoken character, and the other is kind of more reserved. And we definitely see Mm -hmm. that with Noelle and Nini. I was just going to say, yeah, I really enjoy that dynamic as well, and I look forward to see where their partnership takes them. Yeah, yeah. They kind of remind me a little bit of Hiyori and Lisa in Bleach, you know, two of the advisors. I think that Nini in particular looks really similar uh, to Hiyori, and they have very similar personalities. Yeah, she definitely has big Hiyori energy. (laughs) Yeah. In general, I also like their motivations. Like, in... It's a big declaration in the first chapter that, you know, Nini is doing it for the accolades and Noelle is just doing it for the money. But they're going to, you know, <laughs> put on the airs of doing it for justice. But they are really good people and heroic deep down that, you know, do care about, again, the people in their lives and safety of others mm-hmm. and dragons in general. That's what makes me think there's going to be some kind of big showdown between them and their motivations and their personalities as being good people beneath this veneer of money grubbing <laughs> and mm-hmm. some kind of authority. I just feel like that's going to clash at some point, even more than it has we have. Definitely. They're not as selfish as they might want other people to believe or mm-hmm. as they are posturing to, you know, their boss and stuff. Oh, their boss is really interesting too. He yeah. comes off as, as such a goofball, but then at the very end, clearly he's got some, some yeah, he's got skills. There. Like, he shot Ellie from a building, like, half the city away through a small hole in a window. And he's the son (laughs) of a hero. There's definitely something going on with him. He reminds me a lot of Urahara in terms of, hey, here's this kind of goofy mentor character who we don't think necessarily much of at first. But there's definitely a lot of history behind him and the way he is and what informed who he is. And why he's kind of in this spot now, even though he has so much power and potential. Yeah, just every character feels like they have so much potential hiding behind them, and it's just exciting waiting to see what Kubo brings to them. Yeah, and especially since he introduced all these characters with the top of horns. Like, there's all these different Mm -hmm. division captains, and it's very much like how Soul Society is structured in Bleach with all the Mm -hmm. captains of the different uh, Soul Society you know, Soul Reaper squads. 
So I feel like in diff- in subsequent uh, seasons, like we might get a focus on each one of these characters individually uh, interacting with uh, our main protagonist, and as well, they'll also go up against like one of the Marchins as well. That's kind of how I imagine the story might be structured in just mm-hmm. future installments. So I've been curious to see how that plays out. It'd be kind of like how Demon Slayer ended up being structured uh, with the Hashira and Tantra working with one of the Hashira in every arc against like one of the enemies and just getting to know the characters that way. Mm, yeah. Or he could, um, he could keep one of them kind of in his pocket right at the end and then reveal all these amazing backstory and all these powers. Like he excels at, um, Sort of the last minute. Oh, you thought this was over. No, I've got this whole entire vista to share with you. Definitely. And he's definitely keeping one of the captains, like, in reserve for later. Because there's yeah. one that was not at the meeting in the first chapter. The Patrick's yeah. uh, Captain Sakharin. So, you know, they are probably going to come in at some point And their character design and big reveal is probably going to be a surprise. So I'm definitely curious to see how that plays out. It's really interesting because we... We're literally led to believe this was going to be a mini series, and <laughs> clearly, like Kubo, you know, even before this serialization was over, like he had like bigger plans for this world and these characters, which is also interesting. Yeah. Just because he said that, you know, when his initial comments when the series was announced, like this wasn't something he planned to make a full series. It was just something like he did. He was developing for fun, but his editor convinced him to make this a serialization so yeah i I mean i'm curious about your thoughts on that as you were working on it like did you get a sense or know that this was gonna be something that would be left open for future installments or did you work on it thinking it would just be like this short mini series that would be done uh, after these chapters with the one shot when i heard about it I suspected that he would not be able to hold himself back because he is such a world builder. <laughs> I I thought that as soon as he started considering this world, he would get all kinds of wonderful ideas that he would have to share. And once we started working on the series itself, I was like, oh yeah, this is not a one volume thing. He's definitely got a lot here that he wants to tell us. Mm. Uh, I definitely started to feel suspicious around uh, more around chapter three. When the, it didn't seem like uh, things were really wrapping up fully or completely. And also just like <laughs> chapter one, when he introduced all the characters, it's just like, this is uh, not something that he would be able to to cover um, in such a short time frame. Mm. How about yourself, Vanessa? Yeah, um, yeah, I felt the same. Like, I assumed that it was going to be just a short thing. But then like, by the end, it was obvious that he had like more story that he wanted to tell. And... Yeah, like, there were so many characters introduced at the beginning. I was like, I don't think any of them are going to show up by the end. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, reading that first chapter and thinking, man, like, these are a lot of characters to try and develop in just four chapters. And then as that four chapters wrapping up, it did become clear, okay, yeah, he's definitely going to want to continue this. And that's also why I think that he's going to make each, you know, set of chapters going to be focused on, like, a specific set of characters, too. Which I think is a really interesting approach. And I think taking that kind of 
short serialization approach, like doing about a volume's worth of chapters and then taking a break and then coming back after a period of time to do another is a really cool approach. Like to, you know, obviously the rigors of weekly manga serialization are arduous uh, and exhausting. Yeah. And I know that Kubo expressed that he was really like physically and emotionally exhausted by the time he was finished with Bleach. So I think this is a good approach, you know, to do something like at his own pace and keep healthy and creatively uh, energized. That's a really good point. Yeah. The mangaka lifestyle is incredibly hard on the creators. Mm -hmm. But it is really heartening to see that, you know, after Bleach, he has so much imagination to come up with, like, a really whole new world and whole new lore <laughs> for this series. Like, uh, of course, this is tied into Bleach because this is Soul Society West Branch and there are some, you know, aesthetic similarities and kind of sort of callbacks. But overall, it's pretty much its own thing and its own story. And I definitely think someone who hasn't read Bleach could come into this and be fine and yeah, pick it up. Absolutely. I, I think so, too. Yeah, I've never read Bleach and I didn't have any problems with this following the story or understanding the world. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, just from my perspective, you know, like as a fan, uh, as someone who enjoyed Bleach and then came into this and enjoyed it, like, I'm really looking forward to what'll happen in future installments of Burn the Witch and the story that Kubo's going to tell. I like kind of the aesthetics and the themes he's working with. I'm interested in how he's going to develop the characters. And I'm interested to see more of your guys' work on it. <laughs> but we also have some cool questions uh, from fans uh, that were sent to us on Twitter and Reddit that I would like to go over if you guys uh, would also be interested. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with our question from Reddit from our friend uh, Aiden who asks who has the best outfit so far in the series and who has the best hair. And Kubo is definitely <laughs> known uh, for his great uh, fashion sense and, again, character design. Oh, to go back um, with uh, Bruno uh, and his design, like, I, he really reminded me of Grim Zhao. Especially when he put on his mask, like, visually, like, he very much, like, seems similar to Grim Zhao. But on the subject of best hair, I do like his hair a lot as well. Mm. Yeah, he's kind of like a Renji Grimjaw mix for me, and I like both those mm. characters a lot. <laughs> but I think, and it's hard because I haven't seen the full body costumes for all of the directors, but I think right now I'm leaning towards Nini's design as my favorite. Hmm. I like her little ear puffs. I can't <laughs> tell if those are actual ears or just her hair. <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of remind me a little bit of Sailor Moon, the way her hair is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> are those buns or are those ears? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Vanessa, do you have a favorite like character in terms of the fashion or their hairstyle? Yeah, I think I also like Minnie's and also Macy. Mm, yeah. I like yeah. Macy's design a lot. Yeah. I think in general, Kubo is a great designer. But the more I think about the characters, I definitely think Bruno probably is my favorite. Of the designs. Though I also think Roy B. Dipper looks pretty cool. And Wolfgang. Yeah. He's a little bit like 
Yamamoto, he gives off that vibe, but he also is like a cool, in suit, old man, badass kind of looking dude. So that's fun. <laughs> but I also like kind of the goofiness of Takanin. So interested in that too. But now we also have some questions from folks on Reddit. And our first question comes from Aish22. And they have a question that's production related. Uh, did you guys work directly with the team from Japan uh, during the localization process for the Witch? To a degree. So Japan checks all of the pages. And we were able to forward some questions that Jan had and that I had to the Japan team. But there is a middleman, the Shonen Jump team. So it's not like Jan's able to speak to them directly. So the communication is complicated by just the Japan team's time constraints and by that middleman. But we were able to get some of our questions asked and to run things by them. Mm-hmm. And Aisha also has a question about were there any considerations really done in translating because this was, of course, a manga set in the UK, but kind of translated with American audiences in mind? Was Were those considerations uh, you had when doing the translation, Jen? Oh, yeah, definitely. And I think that Caleb um, sort of had that in mind, just, uh, I, I didn't ask him this directly, but just based on his translation of the one shot. And uh, for example, he used knickers instead of panties. Uh, uh-huh. And there, there are a few other sort of uh, linguistic quirks uh, between um, American English and British English that I had noticed there. So I, I tried to keep that in mind, uh, but I am American. So uh, there are likely <laughs> things that I didn't really didn't really know or didn't really notice, but I, I did try to sort of um, leave that in whenever I could um, sort of uh, see something that, that might be phrased differently if it were said uh, by someone who was British. And then uh, I, I think at one point I did try to consult someone um, about whether some uh, slang was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> And, and just like ask a question, like, do, do people actually say this? Or is this just like something that some random person on the internet is saying that people say? But yeah, for, for the most part, um, there, there are limitations. And I also didn't want to, to sort of be like, oh, I know like how someone uh, speaks uh, in another country that I haven't lived in. Like, I, I didn't want to, to sort of be presumptuous in that way. So I, I just only did things that I knew that I was certain about that I could fact check um, and go online and sort of make sure that uh, that was language that's actually used. Awesome. And trying to fully replicate like a dialect in the written word can be very difficult also. So we at Viz generally try and stay away from that anyway. So like Jan did pick particular vocabulary words to just try and invoke the tone of it rather than trying to actually write out how a Londoner would speak. Right. And I guess that also makes me think like when translating character dialogue, if characters have like certain quirks in Japanese that you have to translate or try and like localize, like uh, how have you approached that? Like, did you have to work with that when doing Bleach and the novels? Yeah. Bleach, um, for Bleach, there are a lot of things that just sort of need to be 
lost in translation, unfortunately. <laughs> like, for example, first person pronouns are like different in Japanese. Like, there are many of them. Uh, people don't just refer to themselves as only I. They they can refer to themselves in many different ways that evoke sort of uh, different opinions that they have of themselves. And um, those sort of things are just lost in translation entirely. You can't really retain those uh, without making significant changes. And sometimes, uh, sometimes that's not possible. Sometimes you really need to have that in there and you, you just sort of have to figure out a way to weave it in. In most cases, like in, for, for Bleach, I think that those were sort of uh, ways of distinguishing who is talking more so than it is something that's like extremely important to like making sure that it's there in every single piece of dialogue. Um, so you sort of get a, um, a sense of how a character like views themselves from their pronouns, but then you, in, in the translation, like you can get that general sense through the, the entirety of how they speak. So you don't really need to have a direct translation of that. Um, I, I think that the, yeah, the, the difficult things that, that are, are mainly like accents and dialects in Japanese, there are like many different dialects. Um, and it, it's really hard to replicate those because there are no, um, direct equivalents in English. So for example, um, there's the Kansai dialect, um, which is sort of viewed as like kind of funny, usually. Like uh, they use mm. it a lot in uh, comedic settings, but then it also sounds very pretty and like very refined, depending on who's speaking. Mm-hmm. So um, you'll you'll see it in um, so, for example, in Despicable Me, they when they translated that um, and dubbed it into Japanese, the main character, the mad scientist, is speaking in Kansai then in um, Kansai dialect, and uh, that's like very, very different from the English, but the, the story is supposed to be comedic. So it, it kind of makes sense, but also is a, a bit of a odd choice. Um, and sometimes those things can be, can be a bit distracting too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's a lot to consider when having to localize dialects or certain quirks like that. So yeah, I was definitely curious about that. And it makes me curious to see what some of the things that might be like unique to how a character acts in Japanese and how that differs uh, in the English version, like what those differences are. So that definitely encourages me to kind of research into that for sure. Yeah, it's it's very difficult. Um, as someone who, who's spoken uh, both Japanese and English, there are certain things that you might phrase differently. And uh, there, there's sort of this theory in translation um, and in, in languages that um, um, a person who speaks in multiple languages will change their personality according to the language that they're speaking uh, because of the way that they have to um, express themselves in the language. And I, I think that to a certain extent that is a little bit true. Like I speak very differently um, when I speak in Japanese versus in English. Right. Because, I mean, the grammar, like how like you would phrase something would differ between two different languages for sure. So that does affect like how you think in those languages like how what your thought process would be so yeah that that is a really interesting thing like there is also like a psychological element almost to it but yeah that's that's really cool and the last question we have from reddit comes from a kainu 14 who asks like what role do you think macy's going to play in the story going forward 
And uh, we hadn't mentioned, or I hadn't mentioned it, but I actually really liked Macy. I thought her story was very, you know, sympathetic as someone who kind of had imposter syndrome, being in the same band as Ninny, and like kind of wanting to make something, or kind of wanting to have something that made her feel special, and like latching onto Ellie because of that, because she thought, you know, that was her thing that only she could see, only she could take care of. Then when Bruno reached out to her, that she he needed her for his plan, like she felt needed. So I thought that was very relatable. Mm-hmm. And I, I also have just kind of a weakness, a soft spot for kind of just the archetype of like this kind of obsessive, like queer follower character. Like I've always loved characters like that, like Talma in Sergeant Frog and stuff like that. So that also is very endearing to me. Or Seki Joe and We Never Learn. So yeah, like I'm really fond of her and I'm glad that she's going to be hanging around, <laughs> uh, interacting with the, being part of the main group going forward. <laughs> so is she just going to be a roommate or is she going to start joining them on their investigations? I would like to see her have uh, definitely more of a sidekick role. Yeah, I'm hoping she gets, you know, some sort of power too to help out because she's also now a dragon clad because of her exposure to dragons, you know, mm-hmm. Struelli and Balgo uh, in the fourth chapter clearly evoked some sort of power. So perhaps dragonclads can develop their own powers because of their, you know, association with dragons. I would like to see Macy have that too and also kind of participate in the action uh, going Mm -hmm. forward. But uh, yeah, I mean, you guys, uh, Jay and Vanessa, have any thoughts on uh, that character? I really like her. And I hope that she gets more, like, powers or something. Mm -hmm. Dare I hope... That she and Nini end up together. I, <laughs> I, keep, betting, I keep betting on the hope that my same-sex ships in manga, in Shonja manga, pass. But, you know, I didn't get Arina and Hasako in Food Wars. Uh, I didn't get Ogata and Seiki Joan. We never learn. But will this be the case? Uh, I guess I will have to wait and see. Uh, just <laughs> keep putting those good vibes out into the world. We might be surprised. One day, one day it'll happen. I mean, yeah. uh, Jump, it's not weekly Shonen Jump, but Jump Plus, you know, that ended with uh, the two male leads getting together. So that was really awesome. So yeah, you know, just keep hoping for it. Just uh, maybe <laughs> we will get finally, you know, queer couple ending in a Shonen Jump. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess speaking of endings, we've basically come to the end of this podcast and you know i want to thank you guys again for coming on the show to discuss the series with me and share your thoughts and your career journeys and experiences working in the industry and on the series not a problem this has been a lot of fun oh thanks for having us yeah this has been great thanks for having us (laughs) yeah yeah and I hope we can have you all again to talk about other series or other things in the world of manga in the future as well. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess before we go, do you guys have any final thoughts on Burn the Witch, you know, recommendations for it? Like, if you were to give a reason for people to check out the series, like, what would it be? Mm. If you enjoy unique, deep world building and interesting team dynamics, check out Burn the Witch. Awesome, awesome. 
Yeah, Jahan and Vanessa, do you guys also have <laughs> like a a short pitch? Um, don't know. <laughs> if you like if you like cool dragons. Yes. Yeah. There are a lot of cool dragons. There are a lot of cute dragons. I can't believe we went to this entire podcast and not mentioned how adorable Osushi is. <laughs> He's just a little fluff ball. Yeah, adorable little puppy dragon. Like I love in like in the anime, he's especially very cute. So yeah. I hope they make merch of him. Oh I would love gosh. a stuffy. They, they, <laughs> have, they have. Oh my gosh. The, the merch is actually great. Today. Um they oh, they nice. have this, this little keychain of him and um you can turn him out and he has a little eco bag inside of him <laughs> that's the dragon oh. on it. Um that says show me your panties. <laughs> You can't really carry it around in the U.S. <laughs> oh man, I wish uh, I wish he said "show me your knickers." I really like that colloquial uh, localization choice. <laughs> that is one thing I was sad about also when when watching the uh, anime and the English subtitles. They kept uh, panties instead of knickers. But mm. uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoy colloquialisms uh, like that. I think they work really well. So I like that in the manga. And but, it's a yeah. flavor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Setting appropriate too. Uh, I think anyone who who loves dogs should should definitely read Burn the Witch. <laughs> yeah, especially since I think um, I think Wasushi is based on Kubo Sensei's like actual dog too. Oh my oh. gosh, that's awesome, puppy! <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, more adorable uh, puppy dragons, adorable. Little animal dragons. Oh, we need a kitty dragon. I hope there's one. Mm. It's just a cat dressed in a dragon costume. <laughs> <laughs> or there's a guinea pig dragon. It's a guinea pig dressed in a in a dragon costume. Like in that episode of South Park where there were all those guinea pigs dressed in costumes. Uh, <laughs> now I'm thinking of all of the animals like a capybara dragon. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, dragons can be anything in the series, so sky's the limit. I'm interested in seeing yeah. all the cool, crazy, and cute dragon designs that Kubo is going to draw. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that's something to look forward to, and I'm looking forward to more Burn the Witch. I'm looking forward to more mm-hmm. guys' work on Burn the Witch and other series. And until the next time. Uh, we talk. I mean, uh, where can people find you and your work online? Viz.com is a great place to start. It mm-hmm. lists all mm-hmm. of our titles, and a lot of them have free chapters, so you can check them out before you purchase. Yeah. And then you can read Burn the Witch and a whole bunch of other really great titles at shonenjump.com. Yeah. Is there a particular one you recommend, or not even in Shonen Jump, like some of your other recent titles that you would recommend people check out. Mm. So one that's already complete, so you don't have to wait for updates, is uh, Kamisama Kiss, if you're a fan of mm. Shoujo. It's got really great magic system and a main character who's kind of down on her luck, but doesn't let it destroy her spirit. And she meets uh, an Ayakashi, which is like a demon, and suddenly swept into the world of, of demons and spirits and has to assert herself as a goddess who has no idea what she's doing and it's just so much fun yeah now that that's over i definitely gotta breeze through that whole thing for sure (laughs) and how about yourself uh jan vanessa 
Um, well, you can follow me on Twitter, I suppose. My Twitter handle is vsatone, and I post a lot of in-progress work that I'm lettering a lot. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's about it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I'm on also on Twitter, and I think a lot of the translators are. My Twitter handle is jmitsu, J-M-I-T-S-U. Unfortunately, don't tweet much about uh, my work in progress, uh, but I, I do sometimes retweet um, other translators and uh, and things that they post. I write a few threads sometimes about general topics. Yeah, I really enjoy following you guys, and I really enjoy you know following you know the localization community on Twitter. Like, there's always so many great insights from letters and translators about the work they do. And again, thank you for coming on the show to share your insights with us on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, thank you. But, I mean, just like the story of Cinderella, it seems like the clock is ticking close (laughs) to midnight, so I think we better head on home before the magic wears off. (laughs) And into the night we go. Thanks again to Pancha, Vanessa, and John for coming on the show to share their experiences working on Burn the Witch and their thoughts on the series. It was so much fun, and I'm looking forward to the next opportunity we can chat with them again and revisit the world of Reverse London. But for more thoughts on Burn the Witch, let's head into our community shoutouts, where I'll first recommend Bochunja Podcast the team is on to discuss their work on the series and their impressions of the first and final chapters. We covered a lot of ground in terms of the localization and translation choices made for the series in our conversation, but the Shonen podcast still touch upon a couple details we didn't address and are great supplemental listening. But for a more in-depth conversation on the Burn the Witch anime, which we didn't discuss much, you gotta check out Spicy Ladies Roundtable podcast on the show where they delve into Bleach's importance as one of the all-time most popular Shonen titles and how Colorito's character design choices compare with Kubo's, how that affects the resulting animation, general thoughts on the characters and story, and so much more. It's a very fun, lively, and critical discussion on the anime, and the Spicy Data Podcast is a great listen in general. They discuss a variety of anime with a lot of enthusiasm. It's a lot of fun. Check them out. But for even more great insights into manga localization and the simulpop process, I want to recommend the Japanese translators of New York City interview with David Evelyn on his career journey and translation work, namely on Undead Unluck and Kaiju Number no. 8. 
David's career journey is fascinating and reveals a lot of fun insights on translation choices he made for the series he works on, Undead Unluck in particular, including how he recaptured his creative puns and double meanings through dialogue that would otherwise be missed in a straightforward translation, including how Andy's catchphrase went from something along of wicked shit in the original Japanese to what it is in the manga's English editions as wicked sick. So it's very entertaining to hear like what was translated, what creative choices were made in the translation. It is really a lot of fun. And for other translation insights, check out the Nibley Siblings' new translation blog, Futago Translations. And Nibley's are longtime manga translators, working on series ranging from Noragami to Sailor Moon's Eternal Edition, and on their blog they break down individual pages of manga to highlight their process and approach to translating all the elements on a single page, from dialogue to sound effects, explaining in detail what different terms mean and their thought process in translating them. These are really extensive, comprehensive breakdowns that are highly educational and informative for anyone interested in manga translation because they really show that even a single page has so much information translators have to sort through and the time it thought it takes to understand those words in context and replicate the author's original intent in their translation. It really gives you such a great appreciation to the work that goes into manga translation to see it the way the Nibblies have laid it out in their breakdowns. It's so, so cool. I really appreciate it. But for lettering perspectives, I want to recommend Otaku News' interview with Sarah Lindsley. She goes over what a manga letter does, the challenges of the profession and what she enjoys, and her favorite font choices and typefaces, and what was interesting how she designed her unique font Soapy Hands, which she designed originally for Sweated Soap, and that was a really fun story to learn, and the work that went into that. It's just a very informative interview to share some cool insights into the thought process behind manga lettering. But moving on from the manga industry, but still keeping it in the conversation around the anime industry at large. I want to recommend a couple cool interviews. First, I want to share Steve Harvey's interview with the founders of Dutch Dajo, which was a really nice piece exploring how they became interested in being animators in Japan and founding their studio, and the experience of being a black animator working in Japan and their thoughts on the industry's growing diversity. The piece concludes with them drawing Steve Harvey as an anime character, which was a lot of fun, and Steve proposing plans to collaborate on an anime adaptation of his old stand-up routines with them, which I really want to see. But speaking of international anime co-productions, the Hollywood's new anime Gold Rush panel from the Asia Society of Southern California, hosted by Charlie Coker and featuring media journalist Roland Keltz, Sentai CEO John Ledford, Senior Vice President of Programming Adult Swim, Jason DeMarco, Production IG of American President Maki Teoshima Furuta, was really fascinating. They discussed how the anime industry is becoming more global with the rise of international co-productions and adaptations, and what they foresee for the industry's future. They provide a very grounded perspective on the state of the industry as it is now, especially in the past year under the strain of the pandemic. And what they consider to be quintessentially anime, which is oftentimes challenged nowadays with a lot of shows that are made homegrown or internationally without a ton of involvement on the Japanese side, but are still marketed as anime. And the conversation around that is how they feel about that. 
And they also discuss why anime has become such a valuable form of media for the big entertainment giants in the world of streaming. It's a fascinating conversation between industry veterans about the future of anime and its international significance. But one interesting tidbit dropped during the panel was Jason mentioning he has like eight shows in production for adults from Tanami to set out to come out the next five years. And speaking of Tanami, I really want to promote and highlight CJ Mephres' fan fantastic what tanami means to me feature-length documentary he created for tanami faithful cj has been working on this for the past year it's a true labor of love he interviewed 13 voice actors currently working in the industry several of whom have had roles in shows broadcasted on tanami and he asked them how the block influenced them growing up and motivated their career journeys as actors what makes tanami so important and relevant even now and how meaningful it is for tanami to speak up and discuss important topics like they did with black lives matter earlier this year and what that meant especially to the black actors that grew up and were inspired by tanami to see that it's a really wonderful interview that really speaks to the impact that the block has had on people working in the industry today. And it's such a wonderful tribute and celebration of its legacy and the wonderful community it's created. And speaking of communities, I can't close out my shoutouts for this year without mentioning the Annie Fan Fam. I've shouted out anime feminist articles and podcasts so much over the past year, and I truly believe they're publishing the most thoughtful and progressive anime analysis on the net. Of course, they can only continue to do the work they do with the support of patrons and donations, and they've recently published an article about how they don't quite have enough funds to cover all the projects they want to produce in the coming year. They can make things work by cutting some content every few weeks, but that's certainly not an ideal situation. So, if you can, I highly encourage everyone's New Year's resolution to include donating to Anifem so they can continue to produce the great analysis we've come to expect from them, because they are platforming so many different voices, perspectives, and conversations that no other anime publication on the net hosts or promotes, and I think that is just so valuable and necessary to promote and support. But returning to the subject of how much anime in America has grown, I want to highlight Jared Clemens' recent article on Crunchyroll on the ratings rise of Pokemon and Dragon Ball Z. This was a great look back at how popular those shows were with kids and teens at their peak, like the sheer numbers of viewers watching those shows, as well as the media reaction to them at the time, how they drove the anime boom and created an opportunity for more anime to be widely broadcast and seen by so many audiences on television. It is a great reflection on the cultural importance of what were easily the two biggest gateway anime for a generation of kids, providing context and analysis for data that I really found fascinating. But you know another way the anime industry has grown? Anime dubs are so much better now, and because they're so much better these days, one has to look at some of the poorer dubs out there in which they get a redub. And that's exactly what the Cartoon Cypher team has proposed. They've made two videos highlighting some anime that received poorly done or imperfect dubs in the past and stated their case why they want to see them redubbed. Naming series as old as Revolutionary Girl Ute now to newer titles like Danger Mangus's Bride. The team does a great job explaining why these shows need to redub beyond them just being poorly acted. Getting across other missteps like loss 
intent in translation or performances that were acted well but missed the mark in how they were delivered. They highlight a lot of choices that I would readily agree with, like, you know, the old Dragon Ball Z dub and those Dragon Ball Z movies, and some, like the ancient Magus' Bride and Hachimura Hippo, that I wouldn't immediately think of as shows needing a redub, but after hearing them make their case, I would also like to see them redone. They're fun videos that showcase the Cartoon Cyphers team, and they're great knack for being able to discuss the nuances of voice acting and dubbing, and it's a great watch to hear them dissect some of the most unfortunate misdubs of the past that deserve a second chance, like Ghost Stories and Higurashi. Now we'll discuss a few discussions of the endings of Shonen Jump series, starting with Yazi's thoughts on how the second season of The Promised Neverland can improve upon the manga's ending. It's a good discussion of what the manga's strengths were and how it seemed to fall apart at the end because the decision was made at some point to rush it, and how the bonus chapters that have come out since then have shown that The Promised Neverland was in many ways unfinished and there are so many more details in it left to analyze, explore, and discuss, and her alternatives that would show I'm working with the anime team, the anime version game tie-up, the manga's loose ends. Yasi's breakdown provided so much food for thought, and it's caused me to reevaluate how the series was plotted and ended, making me more interested in revisiting it in the future to see what I may have missed. She plans to do even more analysis and review pieces on The Promise Overline next year, and I'm really looking forward to hearing them. Next are good friends over at the Hoven's Hideaway podcast discuss the endings of We Never Learn and how they felt about the multiple roots approach from the highlights to the low points. Overall, they were still positive about the series, but they do discuss the ways in which these roots both pleasantly surprised and unfortunately disappointed them at various points. But overall, they do get to the heart of what they consider to be the heart of the series and what made it so entertaining as a whole and why some of those endings because of that, fell short for them. But Hoven gave us a really nice shout-out on their show, and so my final shout-outs for this episode are actually going to be a few other pods that gave us a nice shout-out or had us on as guests recently. And first in that shout-out vein, I want to thank Love It or Even for giving us a mention in their Fall 2020 Anime Overview, where Jeff mentioned listening to our Fly Me to the Moon podcast and realizing from that that he'd probably not like the series, which, while not the intended effect, the fact that our conversation could still inform anyone's opinion about whether they'd like a series is still something I appreciate, and... I've shouted them out before, but definitely listen to Love It or Weeb It for Jeff and Annie's fun thoughts on seasonal anime. I've enjoyed a lot of their last couple episodes, and I'm really looking forward to their upcoming ones on Yashihime and Jujutsu Kaisen. Yashihime in particular, because I know Annie's seen a Yash fan, and Jeff's never seen it, so that's going to be an interesting one for sure. And finally, I'm going to close out this episode shoutouts by mentioning that I was recently on two episodes of the My Hero Academia podcast. One discussed the recent Mr. Cron Press Spotlight chapter, which was the second most recent chapter, and the other discussed the four most recent chapters of My Hero Academia Vigilantes, which focused on the O'Clock flashback. It was a lot of fun discussing the series with Kendra, James, and Gary, and I want to thank them again for having me on, and I can hope I can join them on more occasions in the future. And that finally does it for our community shoutouts on this episode, as well as this episode of the podcast, and 2020 as a whole, really, now we're into 2021, and we'll discuss our thoughts on the past year of manga and the podcast in later episodes, 
But we want to thank you all for listening to the show this past year. 2020 was a hard year. But speaking for myself, this podcast really helped me get through it. And I think we grew a lot as a show this year. I'm really proud of the work we've done, the podcast we produced, and the friendships we've made. I'm really grateful that we've received so much great feedback and support from our listeners, and we hope we've helped entertain you through the past year, and will continue to in the years beyond. There's so much more to say, but I'll leave you all with my best wishes on a very happy new year for you all, and my hopes that it will be a better year to come. But with those well wishes made, I guess it's time to finally wrap up the show and let y'all know where you can find us if you want to reach us. And you can find me on Twitter as Atlamiasha and pretty much everywhere I'm at by that name. Wherever there's a Lamiasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my manga reviews on all.com. We've got a lot of books coming in, a lot of books coming out, so look for more on there. And as for the show, well, actually, you can also find my art if you like the thumbnails I draw for the show. You can find more of my art on my Instagram, at SetArtWorks. But as for the show, you can find Manga Mavericks on Twitter, at Manga underscore Mavericks, on Tumblr, at Manga Mavericks at Tumblr.com, and on YouTube, at YouTube slash Manga Mavericks, or just search for the channel name in the search bar, and you'll find it. We're also on every podcast listening platform you can think of, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. And if you'd be so kind, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating review to help us grow and reach more hearts and ears. You can also send feedback to us at our email, mongrevers at gmail.com. We really appreciate feedback, and it helps us with the show and make things even better. And if you send us feedback in the next couple of weeks, again, you'll get another entry for our giveaway. So there's that, too. And you can also help us make the show better by supporting us on Patreon, where we offer a variety of tier options. You can subscribe to us for a slew of perks and privileges, including early access to select podcasts at our $2 tier and a monthly bonus podcast at our $5 tier. In fact, $2 subscribers are able to listen to some of our podcasts early, like this Burn the Witch podcast, you could have listened to two months early if you were a $2 patron. And I've got tons of other podcasts up early on our Patreon, weeks to months and events of the public release, including our Fruits Basket retrospective, which should be the next one to go up on our main feed. But you can still listen to it early right now on our Patreon if you become a $2 patron. And again, take our Manga Mavic survey to be entered into our giveaway and to just, you know, share and celebrate our 50th anniversary with us and let us know what your favorite episodes moments guests and more were on the show for these past five years we'd really like to know and we really appreciate your feedback it really would mean a lot to us you know link is in the description of this episode of course you can very easily find it so yeah i'm looking forward to seeing uh, your guys's thoughts on the show and I'm looking forward to celebrating our 5th anniversary. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I'm incredibly humbled and honored and amazed that we've made it this far. But there's a lot to look forward to. But until next time, this has been the 145th episode of the Manga Arts Podcast. And we'll see you in the next one. Sayonara!